Today's episode is brought to you by Ozark Christian College. You know, many people want to make a lasting kingdom impact with their lives, but they're not really sure where to start. At Ozark Christian College, the Master of Arts in Biblical Ministry will equip you for effective ministry rooted in Scripture. This degree is for people serving in a church, nonprofit, or parachurch organization. With online and on-campus options, the Master of Arts in Biblical Ministry prepares you to answer the kingdom assignment God has for you. Learn more and apply for free at occ.edu masters. Everybody, welcome to the Disciple Makers podcast by discipleship.org. This is Dave Stovall, your host, and I'm glad you're going to be joining me today. We've been working our way through all the track sessions from last year's forum, and today's episode features Scotty Kessler from Faith International University giving his third and final track session of the weekend. Scotty talked to us about having a heart for the lost sheep and not worrying about the numbers about investing in the people right in front of us and not worrying about whether our church is getting huge. We got some awesome stuff from Scotty over the two days of the forum, and I hope that you've been enjoying it. So let's go ahead and jump in and hear from Scotty's last track session from last year. Here we go. My name is Scotty Kessler. I'm the director of the Robert Coleman School of Discipleship at Faith International University in Tacoma, Washington. John Wheeler back there is the academic dean and vice president of the school. So we're here together on uh, just on behalf of the school making this presentation. Uh, The breakout session is called Discipling Biblically the Master Plan Way. Last session or the first session was on what that is. And the second session is going to be what it isn't. There'll be some overlap. If you missed the first session yesterday or, or today, you won't be left out. Um, if you have a question, if you feel like you missed something, just we actually may have time at the end for Q&A um, because my content in this particular hour is less than the first one. So don't hesitate. And I'm more, more than willing to stay after if you wish. Uh, let me start off by saying I'm not an expert in evangelism discipleship trying to work out my salvation with fear and trembling as I, since you are, um, Robert Coleman sometimes says, I really don't amount to much, but I do have a great Savior. And I I like that line because it really captures the heart of what I feel and hopefully will communicate to you. Uh, Let me open in prayer. Lord, thank you for the brothers and sisters that are here. Um, We thank you for what you've given to share. Help me share it the way you want to share it. You're our teacher. I look to you. We look to you. Lord, move me to ad-lib and go aside if you wish. I'm, I'm just saying I'm here and I'm willing to be taken where you want to take me for what these people want or need. I don't know what that is. Don't know them or their story. So you do. And I'm asking for help. In the name of Jesus, amen. So last session we talked about what we are in our discipleship. Now let's address what we are not. Now these comments are, uh, you know, we've been here for four years and done breakouts for three years. And so, and we've, we've been to a bunch of breakouts and we've been to the main sessions. 
And so when we, John and I, think about what we believe about all the variety of things we're hearing, because there's, there's lots of variety and uh, lots of different angles, because discipleship's spiritual parenting in our eyes, and everybody parents differently. There's aspects that are similar. There's aspects that are different. There's certain core values that most people healthily, biblically consider in their parenting, but it's real nuanced. And that's kind of how discipleship is. If you're making disciples, whatever that means to you, um, it's going to be a little bit like this and a little bit like that and a little bit like, just like my children are a little bit like me, a little bit like Tammy, and a little bit like neither of us. Um, it, that's kind of how it is in discipleship too. You know, we have a responsibility to steward these people that are God's children and uh, he's the one that chose them. He's their father. We're kind of representatives of him for them, which is a fear God kind of deal if we're thinking correctly. So as we think about our parenting or our discipleship articulations, both personally and then, you know, kind of what we articulate as a school, there are certain things that, that um, I thought would capture ways that we might be might parent a little bit different than, than other people might. And, and they're worth bringing up because you have to decide in your discipleship, your disciple making, what you believe about these deals. So there's six things that, that we are not in our discipleship. These things aren't unbiblical. They're not sin. They're not linked with eternity. They're just nuances in how we choose over time have evolved to approach it. Um, I started, I, had, I was never discipled. I never heard about it or remembered hearing about it. Um, I was saved at four from a, a Mennonite community that was legitimate, orthodox, conservative, solid. That's, my, that's where I cut my teeth. And, uh, and so I knew him as Savior. I didn't really know him as Lord, not in a way that, you know, that my heart broke until I was about in the early 20s. And it happened when I was in a college football program where the head coach had a vision of allowing people to work out their salvation with fear and trembling within the context of sport. Really radical and unique and powerful opportunity when you got a bunch of guys like you who love God, love the game, want to make memories, and want to do it uh, biblically, meaning we're, we're trying to be godly men. And so, you know, certain things were off the table that were on the table with other people who, who didn't have that conviction. So that being the case, I'm, I'm 64 now, so that's, that's 60 years of hanging around Christian community. I didn't go wayward at any point. I didn't go sideways. I mean, I'm certainly flawed, and I sinned a, sinned a bunch and, and still, you know, am working out my salvation with fear and trembling. However, I've, I've tried to travel in circles with the people that were trying to go Fast and furious, the Bible says, he who walks with the wise grows wise, and the companion of fools suffers harm. And I've always tried to walk with those that I thought were wise in the faith. And, and the way you stay hot is by hanging around hot people because they keep you warm when you're not. And they also provide you with vision and mission because of who they are and how they're living, right? So it's not super complicated how to stay in the game, be a player in the kingdom, and keep playing the game until he returns or you die. Uh, but you have to respect certain you know, principles and commandments. Um, that being the case, this is our articulation of discipleship. That's a preface. We are not materials or resources driven. 
meaning there are, there are groups that disciple, that study books. I know guys that have written their own curriculum and, and you know, published books, etc., which is all great. It's, it's like, you know, if you have believing friends who are parents, you may or may not, something may come up that you think about their parenting, you think, ah, maybe do this different or that different. But for the most part, you know, it's their kids. They're going to do what they feel to do. And, and it's great. And if they need help, they'll ask. And if they don't, they won't. And so we kind of mind our own business and within the body of Christ parent, um, our children physically. And it's kind of that way in discipleship too, where I think if you're thinking healthy, it's like people are giving it their best shot. That's our terminology. They're, they're, they're trying to obey God as best they can and be faithful whatever they've seen or heard or experienced, whether they were nurtured in it, I was not, or whether they came upon it and then tried to incorporate it in it. So I was 37 before I saw an articulation of, of disciple-making of the kind we're talking about today, of the kind that this conference represents. And it's because I ran into this book, Master Plan of Evangelism, which is really a book about disciple-making by Robert Coleman. And uh, it's the benchmark book in our generation. That's just the opinion of Billy Graham, Luis Palau, Bill Bright, guys like that that say, other than the Bible, that book changed their thinking about making disciples more than anything they'd run into. And that's certainly my experience also. And then I had the fortune of, of working as a consultant to a football program that was on the same grounds as the seminary that Dr. Coleman was a prof at. And thus, because I'd read his book, and I, and I'm, and I tend to be a pushy guy and, uh, and aggressive, I, I met with him and picked his brain, and he ended up inviting me into his discipleship community there in the seminary whenever I was in town, which I was at that school regularly. So. So I had a chance then to, to learn from the guy who articulated his understanding of what the master's plan was in evangelism and discipleship, which was obviously incredible blessing, honor, and you know, freaky fortune in the sovereignty of God. So having said that, the Bible is really our primary and exclusive resource. And, 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 the, and the reason that is, is not that other books aren't anointed from God, et cetera, et cetera, but... I find uh, people are generally, who even if they've been in the faith for many years and decades, are pretty biblically illiterate. They really don't have a reading plan. They don't have a plan to study the Bible, um, to themselves study the Bible. They might have a plan to listen to podcasts. They might have a plan uh, to, to externally bring things in through written or technology. But they themselves may not be men or women of the word. That's, that's obviously a problem. They may not read the word with a regular pattern. That'd be a mistake. Um, they don't memorize scripture. That's rare, even in the acknowledged body of Bible memory. is kind of a, somewhat of a lost art, if it ever was an art. The Navigator's ministry historically has built themselves on Bible reading and Bible memory. They're fantastic historical ministry internationally. Uh, this little booklet here, Born to Reproduce, I'll talk briefly about later. It's really the best simple articulation of the kinds of stuff we'll talk about today, and it really, Dawson Troutman and Dr. Coleman were really uh, partners, even though there was a 10-year gap, and Dr., uh, excuse me, Dawson Troutman died in a, he drowned in the 50s after Billy Green, and he decided to partner out to have a follow-up mechanism to his evangelism. But the ministry carried on and still exists and has reached and touched many people in the world. And so I, I, when I started disciple-making, um, at a college as a college football coach with the community of, which started with football players 
you know, it, it evolved where I realized from, at that point I was 37 and, I, and I'd, I'd been serious about God a long time and I was doing ministry stuff through sport at that time and I realized people don't really know the word. They really don't. And they don't have doctrinal positions they can articulate. They couldn't even find their way around the Bible to give a biblical support for it. They'd have to go to an outside external resource. They don't memorize scripture. They really don't have a prayer life functioning behind besides I pray as I go and I pray throughout the day, which is usually a mask for I really don't pray. Um, and so these were habits and disciplines that were non-existent whether these kids uh, were in the Lord uh, briefly or long. And then, of course, I was evaluating because I've traveled a bunch and coaches, mo coaching moves around. I've been to a lot of churches, a lot of different denominations. Thankfully, I've had a chance to have lots of doctrinal expressions that I could draw from and evaluate and decide what I believe. And, uh, you know, there just seemed to be a void of prayer, Bible reading, Bible memory, knowing their way around the Bible, knowing how to use a study Bible to feed themselves rather than have to always be fed. You know, it's embarrassing for a 50-year-old man or a 50-year-old woman who's got a bottle, you know. Of, <laughs> that'd be embarrassing, right? And, uh, and, and we, he, we get scolded by the writer of the Hebrews who says, you're, you're, you're drinking milk. You're way down the road and you're at elementary school. Um, super embarrassing rebuke to people that had been in the faith a long time that he realized have, they didn't even understand core doctrines. He actually lists a bunch of core doctrines there. Many of which people don't have the ability to articulate and biblically support. Though they've gone to the building called the church for a long time. These were all things that I was thinking about when I was working with these kids. Because I didn't want them to develop the way the local church had seemed to develop long-standing believers over decades. So we decided that we're going to focus on the word and getting in the word and memorizing the word. Learning how to study the word to articulate doctrine because we could study themselves. You know, there's a nice line. It works really well in discipleship thinking. If I give you a fish, you eat for today. If I teach you how to fish, you eat for a lifetime. If I teach you how to teach others how to fish, everybody eats forever. Most of what happens in America is people are given fish. They just consume. They go to the building with some, they consume. And they may feed themselves on the side a little bit, usually by external sources, not, not, not internally generated. And, uh, but if I teach them how to fish, the good news is they eat. And they can eat for a lifetime, but it's kind of like good for us and nuts to everybody else. You know, this wasn't about us. It was about feeding the flock entrusted to your care. It's about making disciples who make disciples who make disciples who can feed themselves. Our goal is to work ourselves out of a job, not to stay in the job. It's true as parenting, right? Can you imagine still having the same relationship with your 35 or 55-year-old kid when you're as you did when they were five. That's twisted, man. It's twisted on your behalf, and it'd be twisted for them to stay under that. And yet we create a scenario where people are twisted into uh, drinking milk out of a bottle, even though there are decades because they haven't been empowered, equipped, and sent out. Because we haven't articulated and haven't showed them. And how can you reproduce what you've never seen? I didn't hear about this stuff. I never had anybody approach me. I didn't hear an articulation that made sense. I might have. I might have. I just never registered. I'm 37 years old. I've been in the Lord a bunch of time. I've been in ministry as a layperson through sports a long time. Have no plan. Well, I did have a plan. When, when four guys first approached me the first fall there, I did a little bit plan. 
We read a little bit, we prayed a little bit, and we talked a lot. That's the little bit plan. A little bit plan is not a bad plan because it gets people in the Word and it gets them praying. But, but, but it's really not going to be a robust prayer life. And they're probably not going to have a robust Bible experience. But you will build a relationship, and there's value in that. There's value in the little bit plan. It's just if you stay there, you're going to have them on the bottle forever. And, uh, and it'd be nice for them to get off that, and nice for you to get them off of that. So we're not material resources driven, though the Bible is our primary resource. Rather, we wish to be Jesus driven. Now, that sounds funny. It means, it means that through the operation of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God drives us. It drives every part of the disciple-making process. So what Jesus did with the 12, as best we can tell from principles and, and are looking at the Word and then studying it, and of course other people have opinion about that, then we understand this is not about acquiring more knowledge. This is about a relationship with an actual person who's inside of you as your complete operating system if you've surrendered yourself. And that guy is an, or gal is a completely different guy or gal than a nice Christian churchgoer. And so we want to give them a chance to be biblically based in every way. Prayer, Bible reading, Bible memory, learn the books of the Bible through a little Gilligan's Island tune Bible song, learn how to use a study Bible to study Bible so they can feed themselves immediately within a month to teach them how to use a study Bible and, and study for themselves to build verse pools, to understand doctrinal positions, to articulate and actually biblically support what it is you say you believe without calling on the professional to answer the questions. Low vision. We have low vision, low expectations, and we're paying the price for it. Uh, number two, we're not church-driven. Now, you've got to hear this stuff because I, I, I try to shock, and then I fill in the blanks. And... Uh, we, we absolutely are committed to the local church. However, we're not a church program. This isn't the church discipling. The building doesn't disciple people. The denomination doesn't disciple people. Actual humans disciple other actual humans. Now, what that looks like and how they do it, that's an entirely different conversation. But discipleship is done body on body. And to the degree that somebody rubs with somebody in terms of the quantity of rubs, interactions, over the quantity of time equals impact. If I hang with you for a day and never again, there may be some impact. Something may have struck you, but for the most part, it's not going to be sustainable, and odds are it's not going to be reproducible. But if I hang with you over a block of time, something happens more and different than if I have intermediate, occasional group-setting interactions versus a relationship with a person of lots of interactions over time. Jesus' plan, which isn't necessarily asked of all of us to do it that way, but the principle is a quantity of interactions over a quantity of time. This is three years every moment. Three years every moment, for the most part. Um, this was his commitment. But think about that. That's not like, geez, whiz, I could never do that. You're doing it with your nuclear family. You're 18 years, right? I mean, my baby's eight. And, and Tammy or I know exactly where she is every day for over a decade, right? That's just normal. Stuff. I mean, as an 11-year-old, I'm not going to say, see ya. If you want to pop around the neighborhood, go ahead, let us know. She's 11. I had 11 years with her. And I wouldn't trust her in the house alone at night or if we were gone. Not that I don't trust her. It would be 
you'd go to jail if something happened. But in the church, we throw them a book, we give them a little gift, we invite them to a beginner's deal, we may give them a follow-up call, and if they don't answer, we may just leave a message. That's what we do with a believer who just converted or came back and recommitted after God knows what they went through in their life. And we think somehow that's going to functionally have sustainable impact. It's insanity. It's insanity that we treat our nuclear kids a certain way. And in the body of Christ, with people who are going to live forever in hell or heaven, we treat them with criminal amount of contact, interaction, and commitment. That's our contention. We wished discipleship to drive the local church through the Great Commission lifestyle. Great Commission lifestyle is a marriage of evangelism and discipleship. They're not separated. You know, evangelism is a, is a spiritual gift. Discipleship is not. It's a commandment for everybody. Everybody needs to evangelize. Some people are supernaturally gifted at it. Everybody's to disciple. They already have everything they need. Second Peter 1, 3. Everybody has everything they need to make. Just like, just like humans, once they reach a certain age, that their body functions grow into a place. For the most part, everybody has everything they need to make physical babies. Is that right? Now, the sequence you make them and what that looks like, obviously, that's, that's a whole other issue. But he's given us everything we need upon conversion. It may need to be molded. That's where discipleship comes in. So you actually can use it to benefit the kingdom and others, let alone yourself. So we are not church-driven. However, we are very committed to the local church. And discipleship, disciple-making, should drive the local church. And not the other way around. Because it, frankly, is not sustainable. Third, we're not a small group driven. This isn't about having small groups. We say it this way. Where you find small groups, you may not find any biblical discipleship. There may not be any follow-up mechanism. There may be no nurturing of a quantity of rub over a quantity of time. So where you have biblical discipleship, there will be small groups. But where you have a small group ministry, there may be no, no discipleship, no disciple making, no Body on body or body on bodies. Intentional, that means on purpose. Strategic, that means they have a plan to walk with them over time, to impart to them impartation. It's one of the chapters in Master Plan. To give an impartation so somebody has a chance to fledging as a beginner. They may have, they may have been in the Lord 10 or 20 years, but they've never been spiritually parented. And that happens all the time. I said last hour, the vast majority of people that I've discipled, which is a lot of people, the vast majority aren't people I led to the Lord. They're people that where I was in community, they were just out there flopping around, converted, attending the local orphanage, that's the church, where somebody out front threw out food, food and it could be good food or bad food, and people eat as much as they're hungry or feel like it, and then they go back to their hellhole life or situation or family, and we think somehow they're going to be mature, reproducing believers. I mean, it's... You'd, if you ran a business, you'd be out. If that's how you treated your physical children, they'd be dead or you'd be in jail. But this is our operating system in the local church. Uncommitted, non-costly, irregular, group-centered discipleship. And it qualifies because when people think about discipleship, there, it's actually a fair comment because discipleship generally, if you go to any breakout here, sit up front, 
there's going to be a sense that if the ball moves forward in a person's walk, so they move toward maturation, that would be considered discipleship. Even Dr. Coleman, who's an advocate of the kind of discipleship we're talking about, body on body, quantity of rub over a quantity of time, reproduction that turns into multiplication. He's not saying this is the way. He's saying this is my conviction. This is what I see. But shoot, if people are moving forward in their walk by attending a building or going to a group or sitting under God knows what legitimate ministry, that's all fair game. He's not going to be so arrogant to say that I got the market on what parenting looks like, just like a parent would be arrogant to say I got the market on what parenting looks like. So, where you have biblical discipleship, there will be small groups of disciples and disciple makers. But where you have small groups, it just may be knowledge acquisition. We've, we've, we've become specialists in knowledge acquisition. Teach people stuff so they gain more knowledge and knowledge. So I, I do something called the four knuckles. First knuckle is being born again. You must be born again. The second knuckle, and this is an entirely different place, is somebody who comes to a point, revelation. I want to know Jesus and I want to know him bad. I want to love him. I want to know his presence. I want to serve him. Is that a good thing? Absolutely a good thing. But it's not about you. The third knuckle is about others. It's about giving your life away. It's about the Great Commission. It's about evangelism discipling. You have to go to and through the knuckle of greater commitment. But until you die to yourself and surrender, you're going to miss the power and fruit that God wills because you won't even be minimally obedient because he said very clearly to everyone who confesses his name, go make disciples. So if you haven't, if somebody evaluates, why haven't we? If he said it and was clear about it, why haven't we? Now, uh, I'm going to skip forward here now because it's a good time. So in our experience, and we're going to talk about prayer here also. We did the first session. So for those who were here the first time, the same reasons, in our, in our opinion, that people don't disciple this way, this, this way that, you know, these are some diagrams just give frame of reference. The reason people don't do it is the same reason people don't pray committedly long hour or more with others regularly. We call that long praying. Jesus said, can't you pray an hour? So that's just a, that's just a, 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 a concept that helps us understand what the cost is of be interacting with the invisible world. The cost of interacting with the invisible world is it's going to cost you what you don't have, which is time. And thankfully, I learned from one of my sport mentors. He said, nobody has time. You make time. You decide what matters and you make time. And you can say it matters, but if I cut you open and look at your checkbook, does the kingdom advance and matter in how you handle your finances? That's not my line. It's been a line that's been around for decades. If I cut you open regarding your prayer life and the quantity of times you... How many people have even prayed alone or with others for a block of 15 minutes straight? Super small. Super. I was with the pastor's conference of... Uh, of uh, this guy was a pastor. It was a, actually a sport ministry conference. And we just role-played in our prayer time to see what it looked and felt like. And a guy with humility, honestly, said, you know, he was probably, I don't know, he's 40-ish. Great man of God, missionary, son of missionaries, player in the kingdom. He said, I'm embarrassed. I, I've, never, I've never prayed an hour with people, ever. 
in my whole life. I, I don't think that's a rare comment. And if they've done it, maybe they've done it because they had a special night at church with the night of prayer. You know what I mean? Is this a habitual thing? The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. They have divine power to, to demolish strongholds, 2 Corinthians 10. Prayer in combination of the Word of God is like, is like fire and logs. The Word of God without prayer, it ain't, it ain't going to burn well. You've got to have lighter fuel and, and kindling, and you've got to squirt on that thing and, and fan it into flame and continue to. The Word of God without invisible forces is problematic. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. They can't see. Billy Graham can be a foot away from you giving his very best gospel presentation. But if some unbelief or demonic power, I don't know your doctrine position, is doing this to him and this to him, he's looking at you and he's nodding, but it ain't registering. Because it's a spiritual thing. It's not beaten with good charisma. It's not beaten with a good speaker. It's not beaten with an anointed book. It's beaten by the Spirit of God. And the angels are there to do His bidding all the time. They're waiting there, the Bible says, waiting for orders to go into action to do His will if somebody who calls in His name asks Him to. So when we teach this stuff, we talk about just, I can give you a bunch of backdrop, but just God says, Hezekiah, you're going to die. Hezekiah has a meltdown and cries out to God. God says, okay, you're not going to die 15 years. Hezekiah was going to die. If he hadn't broken down and cried out to God, he was going to die. But he prayed and the Lord was moved and gave him years. David Bathsheba gets her pregnant. David prayed and fasted for a week. His helpers thought he was going insane. The baby dies. As soon as the baby dies, he puts on his clothes, washes, and goes back to work. The helpers are saying, for a week, you prayed and cried out to God. And now that the baby's dead, you get back. And he said, who knows? I thought maybe the Lord would have mercy and resurrect this baby. Now we're into healing and a whole nother doctrinal position. But the point is, ask and he'll do stuff he wasn't going to do. Ask and he'll stop doing stuff he was going to do. Sometimes, here's where people get hung up, ask and he's going to do what he was going to do anyways. <coughs> this is where people get hung up. But the point was, he is daring us, and I can build a case on this biblically, to ask for treasures that he would love to give his people if they would only ask and keep on asking. It's not a one-time ask. And there's all kinds of Bible verses, some of we're going to get to here. We are not Bible study driven. Um, there is a plethora, a consumptive amount of information out there for legitimate knowledge acquisition in the Bible. The problem is, people often have not moved from the knowledge they've acquired to actual obedience. You don't go to heaven because you know a lot. The sign that you believe is that you actually act on what he says. Obedience is the mark of a believer. 1 John 2, 3, and 4. We know that we've come to know him because we obey his commands or want to and repent when we don't. 
The man who says, I know him, but does not obey his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That guy's going to hell. It's clear. I can build a case on it. That's just one verse. You can know that you know him because you've got a heart to obey, and you're repenting when you don't. But a guy who says, I know him, and doesn't do what he commands, if he doesn't obey, he's a liar, and the truth isn't in him. Now we're in the category of, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons in your name? What did he say to them? I don't even know who you are. He didn't say the prophetic word and those miracles and healings didn't happen. He didn't deny it. He just said, you don't know me. You're only doing stuff. You don't obey. You just like the frills and the frosting. That's sobering. It's sobering in our discipleship. So when you're in a place, this is America, my opinion where knowledge is legitimately thrown from many pulpits, biblically, that's solid. And the people don't have somebody to walk with to turn the knowledge into obedience that will actually save them. The chances are slimmer, significantly, that they will engage in a saving way, though they raise their hands and will say, but didn't I? I raised my hand in fourth grade, and, in 16, and when I was 16, I recommitted, and I've been in church for 30 years. We don't know each other. Now, you might doctrinally disagree. You do what you got to do. This is my understanding. Have a case to support whatever your conviction is of different. I have a case to support the fact that obedience-based discipleship is the discipleship that saves. And if people are left to their own, the parable of the seeds is an example of the reality when people separate evangelism and discipleship. We're enamored with conversions. Enamored. Our conversion is a good thing. Absolutely. You've got to be born again. The angels rejoice at a conversion. But the parable of the seeds is sometimes that, and you know this in your local churches, right? People came up front, raised their hands, stood up, took a dealie bob. They walked for a day, a week, or a month. Then they go invisible. They go invisible because we were excited about making babies, but we really didn't want to raise them. We wanted them to be raised, but we didn't want to raise them. We wanted the building to raise them. Has that ever gone well? Does the building raise kids well? Would you say, I'd love to farm all my kids out, my own kids, to an orphanage in... Pick a place. Because that would be awesome. No, you would never do that with your own kid. Because you know better. Chances are great it ain't going to go well. If there's a lot of people in the building, a hundred, a thousand... 30,000, and there's no shepherds there or baby raisers. They depend on a class. They depend on a preacher to surrogate raise their kid. And then we have a parable that's sobering about got snatched that night. Roots never went down. Dead. Roots went down, choked by the world, lust of the eyes, lust of the press, pride of life. No fruit. No fruit is not a good outcome when you stand before him. No fruit is not. If you look at the different passages in the Gospels, they talk about that third category guy. It's fair to say he may not even be converted. But he did have a day. He actually had maybe weeks, months, and years. He's lost. He's lost. That messes with people's doctrinal position because they confess Jesus Lord and believe in the heart that raised from the dead. But the sign of belief is that you actually obey what you believe, not that it's in your head 
because the demons believe. And the demons ain't going to heaven. So if we believe like the demons believe, we're in a bad spot because they don't obey. They don't submit. They don't surrender. Sobering our discipleship because it's on our hands. And, and, and in the scriptures, uh, Jesus is very clear about being unhappy with shepherds who shepherd as a job. They're called hirelings. And don't care about the sheep as if they were their own. I know this with my eight-year-old. I don't just get any old babysitter. I don't pull the neighbor and say, anybody like their babysitter? I'm going to know the babysitter or I'm going to know somebody incredibly well who says, that's the gal or guy you want. Does that make sense? You would never farm your kid out to somebody because they fill out an ad that you haven't vetted. But that's how we raise believers in the church. We farm them out. And hope it goes well. And then we say three quarters of the seeds are in hell. Or at least half of them are and the other one's in a not a good spot. However that works. We're not measurables driven. We're not measurables driven. Jesus appears to care very little about numerical growth. Because his analogies all have to do with one out of ten-ish. And the few and narrow, right, and a remnant, etc. Now, he wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But not all men will be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And it's his board game. So it's not like we throw in our thoughts about the deal. He doesn't ask for advice about the board game. He just said, here's the board, here's the game, here's the rules, here's the principles, apply them and it'll go well for you. Don't and it won't. And there's our option. So when we throw out something like addition and multiplication, which I may or may not get to, it's not like he's saying, yeah, awesome numbers. He just wants faithful, obedient followers. And that's what we're about. If you're enamored with measurables, you're going to compromise the process. Just think about it. If I just ask you a hypothetical, if a guy's a pastor of church that's blossoming, first it had 100, then it had 1,000, then it had 20,000, what are the odds that he lost touch with the people? He's the shepherd, pastor, teacher, preacher. He might say, I only preach. I have other people raise my kids. Would you do that with your blood? I'm not saying that guy at a church of 1,000 can interact and interface, but he better have a heart to do so. He better not let lose touch with the proletariat. You know what I mean? Because when he loses a heart of the shepherd, he puts him in a category of Lord, Lord, did I not pastor a church of 5,000 or 1,000 or 500 or 50,000? Get sorry. I don't even know you. You're in the Word because you want to preach. You're not in the Word because you want to know me. It's not about us. It's about you. It's about you and your numbers and having respect of people, you're going to get your reward on earth. Hello, Disciple Makers Podcast listeners. I want to invite you to the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville, Tennessee on October 5th and 6th. 
Jesus had a strategy, a plan, and a roadmap for making disciples. In other words, he was highly intentional. He guided, coached, and developed his disciples into full-on disciple makers, and by living out the Great Commission, they changed the entire world. We're constantly gaining new insight about intentional discipleship as we look closely at Jesus. And if we're thoughtful and prayerful, we can apply many of those same practices today. So head on over to discipleship.org to buy your tickets for the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. I look forward to seeing you there. We are reproduction driven. We invest in a few who will reproduce. Those who will reproduce over time and it'll turn out being multiplication. Dr. Coleman emphasizes that and he said that to me many times. He said, listen, don't worry about who's not in the room. Take care of those who are in the room. You don't need a bunch of people, you just need one or two who get it. Because if one reproduces and he stays at it, this is just three decades, he would touch in a shepherding way through him or his disciples or their disciples, a billion people. I don't know a church in America with a billion people. Homemaker, teacher, accountant, nobody knows their name. He can touch a billion people. He can touch eight billion if he just works with one a year and teaches them how to go and do likewise to reproduce the transformation of the Holy Spirit. This is the math of the kingdom. This is why Jesus wasn't freaked out about having 12 ordinary unschooled guys. He, he just needed him willing. He needed to willing to surrender to death. That he can work with. And they all did, right? They, they got exactly what he said is going to happen to them. Now, I don't think they're sad now. I'm sure they weren't happy during a window of time in terms of their comforts. But the Holy Spirit had given them a revelation. And they understood, this is not my home. This is the fourth knuckle, surrender. It's not my home. This is not my planet. I'm going to be here 50 whatever years. I'm 64. I got a decade or two left, maybe. Right? And I'm going to be 500 million years somewhere else. It'd be nuts to invest in this planet if I got 500 million years. If I have a bank that's at 0.001% like America right now, and I had a bank that had 900%, where would you stick your cash? If you knew it was there and it was simple, and you chose the 0.001%, what would people think about you? If I offered you $30 or $30 billion, said $30 today, which means you can go to Red Lobster and get a nice individual meal, or I give you $30 billion tomorrow, which is the truth. Right? Days like a thousand days, that kind of thing. You know, God's, God's not linear like we are. So if I give you $30 now or a billion tomorrow, what are you going to choose? People can't wait. They just won't wait. They want the cash. They want it now. This planet is their home. They live like it. They spend like it. They disciple like it. Completely out of touch with the commandments and principles and the realities of eternity. So we got to move from born again to I want to know Jesus bad. Oops, it's not about me. It's about others. And the fourth knuckle is life is mission. With a great commission lifestyle, evangelism, discipleship isn't something you do. It's who you are. Because there's lost people and they matter to you because they matter to him. And there's found people that, that are flopping around without a spiritual father or mother. And so you're drawn to them. You either take care of them or you find somebody to take care of them. But you don't walk by the side of the road with a baby flopping around on the curve when we drive out of here and say, geez, I hope somebody gets that guy, right? Because that's what we do in the church. Somebody's flopping around on the side of the road. We see them. 
Because they went up front, they raised their hand, they've been there a few times, and we say, geez, how come they're not around anymore? I wonder what happened to them. He died. He's not here anymore. Because nobody cared enough about the poor and the powerless and the lost. Like a shepherd would. A shepherd. David protects the 99, he goes after the one. If the Lord had thrown another guy out, there's some sheep outside the fence trying to get in, chances are real good, David would say, kind of full up. Hotel's full. This, this, is a, this guy's dead by morning, right? He's that first seed. He goes back to this abusive home after he raised his hand and God moved on him to convert. Nobody follows up. Nobody reaches out. Nobody knows his name. He's pounded because he's in an abusive situation or her or whatever. What are the chances they're going to come back to the table? Do we care? The heart of a shepherd, the heart of a disciple maker cares about that stuff. They have a plan. They're either going to take care of it or they're going to find somebody to take care of it. It's the military thing, right? It's the Afghanistan thing. Nobody is left. We're not leaving anybody. I'm not getting into politics. I'm just saying the attitude is we're not leaving anybody behind who has interest in getting inside the fort. We're going to pray and we're going to hunt and we're going to pray and we're going to hunt and we're going to give them a chance to come inside the fort for eternity. We are not one-on-one -on -one meeting directed. This is a big deal because a lot of times when people want to disciple and they realize it's going to be a costly personal relationship with Daryl and I over time, they think, I'm a homemaker. I've got a job. I'm, i got kids. I mean, i got time to meet with a bunch of people. Well, number one, nobody has time. You make time. And nobody's asking you to have three one-on-ones a week or five. We, we don't parent our physical children one-on-one. -on -one. There are times when we'll pull one of the children aside because it's practical. There's times we may be with one of the children. But most everything we do is in groups. Jesus discipled in groups. Somehow in America, we think we disciple in one-on-ones, which is why it's not sustainable. Because if you'd all got a heart of a shepherd and you're only going to meet with one guy or gal or a couple and the others, you just don't have bandwidth. He discipled in threes and twelves. There's no biblical record of Jesus having a one-on-one -on -one with his disciples. None. He met Peter, James, and John on the side. Special sauce for guys that were uniquely hungry. James and John, the sons of thunder. Peter was thunder. Isn't it interesting that the three guys that got the most special sugar were three guys described in the Bible as being kind of uniquely hungry. I don't think that was coincidence. The hungry will get fed. But you had trees and twelves. The one-on-ones he did was with the lost. Nicodemus, woman at the well. Yet somehow in our minds we think this is about one-on-ones. It's not about one-on-ones. It's you raise your family and community. When we eat dinner, I don't send them in in shifts of one. They're all there. So when I correct Taylor, Reed listens. When I correct Riley, Reed and Taylor listen. When Peter gets corrected, everybody says, don't go there ever, right? You do it in community, which is the same way we do it with the nuclear family. You can have further conversations about that. Parents don't wait 18 years till they have baby number two, right? They just have them and they figure it out, right? It's not this methodical, we got to make sure we raise them well and then discipleship. 
when they're with me for six months or a year and a year and a half, those three to five guys or gals will flush them out, start a new three to five. Well, neat for the three to five, but nuts on the other three to five hundred that don't get in your club because your club has a ceiling on it. Now, don't take me literally on that. Think of the principle behind it. Think of the principle behind it. Obviously, if you're with one-on-one -on -one somebody, there's more and a unique kind of rub that can happen if I got one kid. Or, but that's true with people that have five kids or ten kids, isn't it? Obviously, they can't give perfect attention to all ten of them individually. It doesn't stop them from making babies. It doesn't stop them from parenting. They just organically continue to have them, invite them in. So eventually, this is what happens in discipleship. I was with the guys last hour. And I said, you know, at one time, I had 23 guys in my men's group. Now, I wasn't discipling 23. Some of these guys were, were the grandsons, my grandsons. They were the sons, spiritually, of my disciples. So I had sons and grandsons in the same group. Because I, 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 can't, I can't take care of 23, but I can take care of whatever the number is. And those guys, can same thing we do in our home. The 23-year-old and the 26-year-old take care of the 8-year-old so that we can go to Home Depot or go to a movie or whatever, right? Because I may not be able to afford a babysitter, but I got babysitters in my house when they're of an age or maturity. And when your disciples are of an age or maturity, they need to take over the parenting of the other children in your house so that they're working out their discipleship within your family. Just like what happened in most other countries where the grandparents and the parents and the children and sometimes even the grandchildren are in the same building. Isn't that true? We're moving that direction if the country falls apart to where you're not going to live in this nice little nuclear building, your house. It's going to be they need, they need a place to stay. And there's a, You know what I mean? This is true in every country in the world, second and third world. It's not true in the first world. It's like, what, 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 what? Hello, federal. Okay, a few other thoughts on discipling. Oh, she's whiz. Okay, Lord, what do you want to do? I'm going to just, I'm going to cover the wall to make sure I do it. And then I'll come back. Um, my impression is there's a, a huge misconception about the difference between addition and multiplication. That multiplication is a buzzword. People talk about multiply. The names of their ministries are multiply. They may or may not be multiplying, but it's a buzzword. Is that right? You don't have people talking about addition, addition. They're all talking about multiplication, multiplication. The problem is, in my experience, when you cut them open and look, what's going on is addition, not multiplication. Because people are meeting with people, and they're meeting with more people, and they're meeting with more people, and more people get added to the church, and it's growing significantly, so people feel that's multiplication because we're growing. Maybe none of those people inside there are meeting with another person. So you lose the math. Whether this number after 30 years is 31 or 500, you lose the math when you don't walk with people, model and encourage them and supervise them as they raise other disciples themselves. If there isn't a reproductive element, you will never multiply. Because nobody multiplies. I don't multiply Daryl. I walk with Daryl in such a way that he meets with another guy or two or five or ten and I meet with another guy and then the next year, hypothetical model, he meets with another one or two or three or nine 
And each of these guys meet with another one or two or three or nine. And I meet that next year and, and we reproduce ourselves. So two becomes four, becomes eight, becomes 16. Versus I just add two, three, four, five, six. It's invigorating to see growth. But it's like the guy fixated on $30. Addition is not a bad deal. I just would prefer 30 billion over 30. And I'd, and I'd prefer multiplication over addition. Jesus isn't enamored with church growth. He wants individual maturity growth and reproduction so that if they follow the master's plan, you 12, Paul to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 2, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, you entrust reliable men and teach them how to teach others also. There's four generations in this conversation. His sons, my grandsons, and his grandsons, my great-grandsons. And Paul was saying to Timothy, this is the game. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about having a happy club. This is about me modeling what I learned and saw from Jesus. So I give my life away to you in such a way that you give your life away to somebody else and teach them to go likewise. And we continue it for perpetuity until we die or the Lord comes. That's multiplication. We skip the step of reproduction and you can't go from addition to multiplication without costly, time-consuming investment in humans. So you get yourself fired, that's me, as a pastor of discipleship because your plan is too slow. You've been there three years and you got eight guys? That's all you're working with is eight guys? Yeah, but stick with the plan. We'll reach the world in a generation. And they'll all be supervised and parented along the way and reproducing themselves, parented, mature believers who reproduce. But most people can't stomach it because they've got to have numbers for them to justify their budget or your calling. There's a problem with the church. It's enamored with numbers. It loves addition. There's a church, I won't say the name or the city, that's adding 1,000 people a year. A lot of people. In 30 years, they're going to have 30,000 people. No telling if any of those 30,000 have been spiritually parented, supersight, or where they are on the seed chart, right? We just know they show up, and we count butts, and there's 30,000 that come to my satellite stuff. But this guy who's the car mechanic, who just which was one a year and reproduces, in 30 years, he has parented parents who parented parents, and they've reached a billion. So this church, which we honor and exalt because they're a mega church and have 30,000 attenders with a lot of pizzazz, have zero correlation to actual parented humans who ever actually make disciples, but they do show up weekly because your music's good and the guy's charismatic or gal. This is the American church. Describe the difference between a disciple and a mentor. We see disciples. This is not a Bible verse. It's just how we, it's how we view it. A disciple is like a father or mother. A, a mentor is like an uncle or aunt. You only have one parent, kind of at a time, right? You, have mo you got a mom or you got a dad. Both. Right? I'm talking, let's stay with sexes. So a boy's got a dad. Mom's got a, uh, a girl's got a mom. I have 14 uncles and aunts because I got a big family on two sides. I love my uncles and aunts. Some of them I'm closer with, some I'm not so close with. They love me. I'm their nephew. 
I'm sure they care. And if I was on a street corner or lost, I rolled into their town, I gave them a call. Odds are they'd come pick me up. They care. But when you're a baby at a family gathering, which we had in North Dakota in our little farming community a lot, and, he, and I poop my pants, the uncle and aunt don't run to the changing table. The parents are responsible. The uncles and aunts are available. It's good to be available. You need people available. Have you ever used this line? Let me know if you need anything. You want to know something when they're hurting? They won't. They won't. And you really don't want them to call you. You just want to sound like you care. So you say, let me know if you need anything. Because if you really cared, you'd initiate and pour into them to make sure they're well. Does that make sense? Parents are responsible. So when you have your flock, whatever it is, got 100 or 1,000, who's responsible? For the newbies, who's responsible for the elementary school maturity? Who's responsible for the junior high and high schools? Are we just throwing them to the classroom with somebody who's going to give them a lesson or in a lot of places now basically just entertain them because we want them to like church so they don't not come? And we ready dummy it down so they don't meet twice on Sunday and once on Wednesday, right? And we think we're going to raise mature believers by giving them a few scraps and expect them to walk with God for a lifetime, finish strong, reproduce, and multiply. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. So this is a huge deal. So we talk about who's your parent? Who's responsible for Who's supervising you? Who's in an intentional strategic relationship for a week, month, year, couple, three, whatever? Who's responsible for you to make sure that you stay in the game and that seed germinates, the roots go down, it doesn't get choked, so you can bear a hundredfold fruit? and feel the pleasure of God, the fruit and the power. That doesn't happen by accident. The parable of the seeds is clear about that. Somebody did the costly work of making sure that guy is provided and protected for up the food chain. Just like in the nuclear family, somebody, dad, mom, if you got two parents, are responsible. My boys aren't responsible. They're available. They love their sister. They have never changed her diaper, neither would I ask them to, because I'm the parent. And that's what parents do. Are we parenting our flock? Jesus said of David, he shepherded my flock with integrity of heart. Here's what I love about the shepherding piece. I was thinking about this week deeply because I'm reading in Samuel and Chronicles and Kings. And, I, you know, Daniel was a flawed dude, man. I mean, he was flawed. Adultery, murder, kids killing each other. This is the story. You know what he did, though? You know what was a big thing? When daddy was gone and he put David in charge of his kids and he taught them through sheep, not people, David shepherded with integrity of heart. That's why he's the exalted king, though he in many ways has a track record as bloody and broken as a human has. Odds are there's nobody in our room right now that has both committed adultery, organized the murder of somebody else, and has kids in jail for killing other kids. Right? And yet, he's in the lineage because the good shepherd found a shepherd of his flock. Though flawed. Huge, huge, huge. I'm going to hit to that part. I know it's lunch and you want to roll. Peter. End of the time. He's getting ready. He's resurrected. Peter gets reconciled through his denial. God sits him down. Jesus sits him down and says... Feed my lambs. Oh, well, of course I love you. Feed my sheep. 
Well, Lord, I love you, of course. But take care of my sheep. What do you think he was saying? You know, when he does something three times, it's like, you know, I think as a parent or a coach, I'm, you know, my background's coaching. You say something a couple, three times to a guy at the same time, in the same sequence, it's like you're trying to say, this is a big deal to me. This is the heart of a shepherd, Jesus, trying to <laughs> shepherd his sons, the disciples, and understand the high cost of shepherding the flock as soon as he leaves the planet, which is imminent. And then he gives them the power to do so. Paul, 2 Corinthians 11, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. He was a gifted apostle. He was a messenger. He was on the road starting, planning, starting, planning. As soon as he left, the wolves came in and screwed everything up continuously. The epistles in the book of Acts are a continuous story of cleaning up messes of humans. Right? Paul's heart was Jesus' heart, which is I grieve and pray over my flock that he's entrusted to me. In our disciple making, if it's a grid and a chart, if it's an org chart or a program or a plan, he's looking for shepherds. And it's going to cost you your life. And he led the way. He said, go and do likewise. Your reward is great if you're faithful. Take care of the people in my planet that I leave to you in your circles that you see are lost or poor and powerless or young or struggling or orphans or whatever. No time. Why don't people do it? I'll finish with this. So prayer, I didn't talk about this time at all. And uh, some of you were here before. The reason people don't pray long, often with others, and the reason that people don't disciple this way, I've found is four reasons. It's, it's rung true. It's fascinating. First one is ignorance. Ignorance is not a bad word. Ignorance is just a, it's a Latin word that means eh, opposite, no. They didn't know. I was ignorant. I'd never seen discipleship. I'd never heard of discipleship. Nobody ever approached me about it. I had no idea until I was 37 and I read Anakia's book and he, he presents a concept. And I was willing and at a place where I had a pond of players that were more than willing to spend time with me if I would commit to them. And it went from 4 to 13 to 23 and turned into a church plant and turned into all kinds of cool stuff. Because I was with them all the time in football and they were on campus. It was, you know, campus communities are great fishing ponds now. Unbelievable. Ignorance. You can't reproduce what you've never seen or heard of. So we break ignorance with, ignorance with conversations like this. Because you may have been here and said, I've never heard this kind of stuff before. I don't know. I'm not saying I'm Johnny Special. I'm just saying at 37, I'd never heard anything. And then I heard it. And then I ended up on a campus where the guy was a professor and I could work it out and then he invited me on my deal and I was already discipling in the little bit plan uh, ignorant but sincere I was sincere I cared a bunch about those stinking kids still in touch with them the four that started and the others really truth this is the truth second reason people don't unbelief they don't think you have to do it that way you don't need to pray that much that often with others I can stay in my prayer closet right well doesn't seem to be that the biblical record is everybody prays alone, long only. It seems that most of the fasting and prayer stuff and everything was done in corporate communities because they understood the principle that when two or three are gathered in my name, something happens more and different than one. doesn't mean don't pray alone. It just means in your, in your buffet, make sure you have a variety of different expressions of prayer 
and have law and praying be one of them that you're committed to at some level equitably to your other ways of praying. Unbelief. They don't think you have to do it that way. Classes are good. We got material. We got good curriculum. We got a good follow-up mechanism. Somebody's going to give them a call. Would you ever do that to your kid? Hey, I'll give you a call, Riley. I know you're eight, but I'll see you for an hour on Sunday. We'll check in maybe on Wednesday night, and I'll give you a call. Maybe we can Marco Polo a little bit. And I think she's going to raise up and be a woman of God who doesn't get slaughtered by culture or her own carnal nature or God knows what. Ignorance, unbelief. The next one is fear. The reason people don't disciple this way is because they don't want to make a mistake. They don't want to mess somebody up. They don't want to make a mistake. They don't want to have a bad experience. So out of fear of failure, fear of man, generalized fear, they'd rather just do the orphanage deal and make sure we do group stuff and get good food and better and better food to throw to the orphans. Bad plan. And the fourth one is the most critical. It's the cost. It's the cost. The cost. The cost. Nobody has time. Well, obviously nobody's got time. Who's got, pray to, who's got time to pray an hour or more regularly, whatever that is? What are you going to cut out in your life when you got a job and she's got a job and you got kids and you're in ministry or you're a lay person? And you know what I mean? You feel like the house is on fire all the time in real life. I mean, unless I'm different than most people. It's like controlled chaos and I'm at the mercy of God asking for help and cover my butt and all that stuff. This is, this is my experience. And in the midst of that, I'm going to meet with one or three or nine or 12 or 15 people once a week and keep interacting with them. Oh, yeah, you can if you're on the fourth knuckle because you've said no to a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter and is going to burn. So I don't follow sports like I did when I had no children and was single. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just I, I shifted. Because now something matters more than something else. That's why you got to shift to the third and the fourth knuckle, or you're going to stay about me, me, me. We got a whole flock of self absorbed, I want to know Jesus bad, I love him with my whole heart, believers in the pews. Gaining knowledge without obedience and not making disciples, which is minimum obedience. Welcome to the American show because of the cost. But if your life has been transformed because somebody gave their life away to you and you saw it and felt it and were changed by it, you got a real chance that you'll get how to do that with somebody else. I had one of my disciples one time. He did not fear meeting with other guys. You know, a lot of them were hesitant. That's a whole other story. And, uh, and I said, why do, you, why do you meet with guys so freely in the campus community? Why are you willing to interject and catch a coffee or a lunch or whatever? And he said, because when I was in junior high, I had a junior high pastor that met with me regularly. Came to campus, you know, kind of like the Young Life thing. Came to campus, hung out with me, went to ball games, saw me play. So I know, I get how to meet with people. He said, my problem is he didn't take me anywhere. <clears throat> All I know what to do is to meet with people and love on them. But he never walked me anywhere in the things of the faith. He didn't give me or develop me any habits. I didn't have a prayer life. I didn't have a reading life. I didn't know how to use a study Bible. I didn't memorize scripture. I wouldn't feel good about a gospel articulation. I didn't have accountability relationships. I've never shared my testimony. But I do know that it's fun to meet with an older guy or gal every week and have them take me to coffee and get me a frap. Right? So have a plan. Make sure it's a good plan and execute the plan. Have a plan. What's your plan? Make sure it's a good plan. If you don't have a plan, find somebody you think has a good plan that you've observed the fruit from 3 John 4. Where John says, I have no greater joy than seeing my children walking in the faith. That's the heart of a parent. When I, I'll finish with this. If you put 
million doesn't even matter anymore. If you put a billion dollars right here, a billion legitimately, and I can walk out with it in my bank account, and you got Evan Thomas or Doug Johnson or Ryan Buskert, the head of Young Life at, at Grand Canyon that's got 300 people in his fishing net and he's discipling 35 guys, college kids that are servants. Do you think I'd take the money? over a relationship with a guy who's bearing fruit with the Holy Spirit power for eternity? That money is less than nothing. Because once you get grabbed by the Spirit and discipleship, or once you're a parent and have children, I don't know any children, the parents that are healthy that say, yeah, I had a couple, I got three kids, but you know, we should have just stayed with two. I mean, Riley's a sweet girl. She's really nice and all. But it got more complicated when we had the third. And we were going to be empty nesters, and now we got to start over. You'd look at them and say, you're a sick sucker, right? But in the faith, this is how we look at it. We're twisted. We don't even respect the nuclear family principles, let alone what Jesus did and showed. Okay, so if any of this stuff interests you, if you've never heard or seen this, he's going to pray at the end of the daily today. He's 95-ish. He's still got his faculties, but he's 95 Wait to see how he animatedly prays. It ain't an act. I was with him in a hotel room the first time he took me on a road trip like Jesus was 12. And I watched him go, whoa, I don't know Jesus that way. That's how you learn, is walk with somebody who's been where you haven't been. Dawson Trotman, 50 cents a piece. You can get him for a packet of 20 for five bucks, whatever the math is on that thing. This is Dawson Trotman saying, this is disciple making as a statistical Analysis, super simple, fantastic. If you don't pray, your disciple making is going to be less than it can be. I'll leave it at that. The best writer that I know in the world, as acknowledged by others, is a guy named Ian Bounds. He wrote eight small books on prayer. They're not doctrinal. Somebody can read them who doesn't even know anything about seminary or care about it. Eight books. He turned it into one giant book. It's called The Complete Works of E.M. Bounds. You can find it on Amazon for nine bucks, man. And then Leonard Ravenhill, who was a, was a mentor of Keith Green, for those who are older that know about Keith Green and stuff. Leonard Ravenhill said, this guy writes about prayer unlike anybody in this last century. My feeble opinion also. If you want to hear articulations about the way we talked about there, get his stuff, and you'll be so convicted, you'll either put the book away or you'll never be the same. And I'll leave it at that. I got a business card up here. Here's my email, the website, and phone number. It's on the business card. I am just a guy. But if you want to have a further conversation about any of this stuff for any reason, I'd, I'd be glad to sh let you know what we did wrong and the few things we learned by making so many mistakes. If you want to just hear a way to think about this like Dr. Coleman and Dawson Trotman articulated. Is that cool? Lord, bless the people. Thanks for them hanging a little longer. I messed them up because now that line's longer that they can get their beautiful sack lunch. And I do feel bad about that, and I'm sorry. And I pray that they be satisfied in talking to somebody before they get their lunch. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you, everybody. That was great stuff from Scotty Kessler. Scotty, thank you so much for sharing your heart with us at the forum last year. Hope you guys have been enjoying these episodes, and if you have, I want to ask you to click the subscribe button so that you can stay up to date every time I release new episodes each week. 
Also, there are links in the show notes for Ozark Christian College and a way to register for this upcoming year's forum. It's going to be great, October 5th and 6th, so make sure you do that. All right, thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.